Thank you, Dan and choir, Eric and Sarah, for beautiful music, instrumentalists. Turn your Bible to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. While Peter and John play supporting roles, we can be sure that Mary Magdalene has a starring role in the resurrection story. In this crucifixion account, John contrasts the four soldiers who have crucified our Lord with the four women who are faithful. Look at verse 23, right above. Of chapter 19. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. Look at verse 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but, there it is, contrast, but... There were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and there's our star of chapter 20, Mary Magdalene. Now, of the four ladies mentioned, there's only one who's not part of the family of Jesus. Otherwise, it's his mother and two aunts, but Mary of Magdala is not part of the holy family. We can be certain that Mary had been there to eyewitness his horrific death. She had been there when Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, meaning all that God has given me to do, I have accomplished. And when we take a look at Matthew's account and weave it together with John's account, we discover that Mary Magdalene was actually present when Joseph of Arimathea received the body and wrapped the body and laid the body in the tomb. In fact, Matthew tells us that she was opposite the grave, meaning she had seen it all, how hurriedly they had anointed his body. It wasn't done like she would have done it. She saw the stone rolled over the mouth of the cave that stone that is necessary to separate the living from the dead. We can only imagine how disappointed and downcast she was when the one who had saved her from seven demons now could not even save himself from death. This week we join Mary as she journeys to the tomb of our Lord. Well, look at verse 1, still dark. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it is still dark and saw the stone taken away from the tomb. Interestingly enough, all the gospel accounts, every one of them does not refer to this day as the third day after the crucifixion. No, it's not the third day. It is the first day of the week. By telling us it's the first day of the week, we realize that our gospel writers are describing something new that God is doing. 
It certainly explains why we are gathered here today, not on the Jewish Sabbath, but rather on the first day of the week, the day the tomb was empty. Having seen Jesus' actual burial, Mary knows the exact location of the tomb, and she travels there while it is still dark. By telling us it is dark, not only is he informing us of the time of the morning when Mary arrives, but he's letting us know that the resurrection of Jesus is a light shining in darkness. She comes early. Now, it appears as you read John's account that only Mary is coming to the tomb, but not so. Look in verse 2, the plural pronoun we. Mary is accompanied by the other ladies that were told about and the other gospel accounts. In fact, it would have been unheard of for a Jewish woman to journey to the tomb alone in the darkness of the morning. Despite the fact there are other ladies, John wants us to focus on Mary and Mary alone. The Sabbath approaching Nicodemus had done a, a man's rush job is the best way I know to explain it. Men never do things to women's satisfaction, and certainly the way they had anointed the body of the Lord with the rushing Sabbath, it wasn't done just right. And so Mary of Magdala, well, she's going to show up and do it right. She's going to make sure her Lord, Lord's body is anointed completely. She mournfully approaches the tomb, the gospel writers tell us, bringing the expensive spices which she had prepared. And all the way the women discuss, how are we going to remove that enormous stone and get in there to the body of our Lord to make sure he's buried rightly? To their great surprise, they discover that the stone has already been rolled away. Out of the tomb, look at verse 2. And she ran and, and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Mary's immediate response to the empty tomb is to run to the apostles. We're told specifically she runs to Simon Peter and notice the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Throughout this gospel, the writer John never gives us his name, not once in this text, but the beloved disciple is the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, the apostle John, the writer of this gospel. He describes himself as the one whom Jesus loves. John gives us an honest report con concerning Mary's faith or lack thereof. The possibility of a resurrection never even occurred to her. Her conclusion is clear. The grave robbers have come, they've stolen the body, and Simon, John, we do not know where they've laid him. Reference to grave robbers. Emperor Claudius, A.D. 41 through 54, made it a capital punishment to rob a grave. It happened so often, so frequently in antiquity. If you destroyed a tomb, if you removed a body, if you broke the seal of the stone, 
that it was a capital punishment. Mary is certain that someone has stolen the body of her Lord. We do not know for they've laid him. It's a small detail, but I want you to notice it in verse 2. They've taken away the Lord. It's the first time in John's gospel that we have the article there. If he's not one amongst many, he is the only Lord. He is her Lord. They have taken away the Lord from the tomb. To Mary, to me, and I hope to you, he is the one and only Lord. Verses 3 through 5, running together. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. I read that fast because this is a breathless text. Everybody's running in John 20. Mary runs to the tell the apostles. The apostles run back to the tomb. Now, if we had to declare a winner of this first century foot race, it is John. He is faster than Peter, but he's cautious. He looks in and sees the grave cloth, but he dare not go in. The most ancient explanation as to why John was faster than Peter is that he's younger, he's faster, he gets there first. Peter, a little older, gets there, but Peter's impetuous. Verses 6 and 7, entering the tomb, look at them. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb. He beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Peter doesn't hesitate like John. He goes straight into the tomb. The linen wrappings, the wrappings that would have been around the body were there. And then the face cloth that would have been around the head was folded up. One at the head, the foot, they were all there at a neat place. The linen wrappings would have been that main cloth that went all the way from head to toe, wrapped around the body with spices placed in and perfumes anointed. The face cloth was separate from the linen wrappings. It went around the head to keep the mouth closed upon death, but it was detached. Why does John make so much of the grave cloths? First of all, they were neatly wrapped. It was evidence that we have not a robbery, but rather we have a resurrection. The robbers wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap the body. In fact, the claws might have been the most expensive thing, along with the spices wrapped within them. No robber would have removed the claws and left the spices, but no, they are neatly folded there. And secondly, not only does it show us we have a resurrection and not a robbery, it is in contrast to Lazarus. Do you remember him earlier in this gospel when Jesus calls him to come forth? He waddles out wrapped in the grave cloth. He must be loosed from the chains of death, but not Jesus. He has defeated death. He has passed through them as they could not keep him. 
Verse 8, seeing and believing might in fact be the apex of the story. So the other disciple, meaning John is writing about himself, who had first come to the tomb, he entered then also, and he saw, and he believed. What did he see? What did he believe? How many times had Jesus told them that the Son of Man will be crucified in the hands of sinners and then on the third day would rise? Yes, they had been told over and over again, but they did not get it. They could not imagine a crucified Messiah. And at that moment, it all comes to John the Apostle, all the words of Jesus now echoing back through his mind. This is what our Lord had spoken of, that he would die and that he would rise. And he now saw and he now understood and he now believed in the power of the resurrection. Verse 9 and 10, the scriptures. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went again to their own homes. John is quite honest in reporting that he and the other disciples didn't get the scriptures before. Maybe it's a reference to something like Hosea 6.2. He will raise us up on the third day. Or Jonah 1.17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Or maybe it's something like Psalm 16. For thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will thou allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Or maybe it's a reference to all the Old Testament combined into one as they all declare his glory. The resurrection explains scripture, what is read. And the scripture explains the resurrection, what is seen and experienced. John has that aha moment when he sees the nothingness of the tomb the emptiness of the tomb, and he believes. I know this morning that John believed. Do you believe this morning? Do you yourself arrive at the empty tomb and peer in and see and believe? Do you arrive and declare the scriptures have been fulfilled in all that Jesus has said, has come to pass. Weeping, verse 11 through 13. But Mary, I want you to notice the adversative conjunction, but Mary, in contrast. Now, we don't know when, but at some time, Mary comes this time, she is alone. It goes to the first person pronoun, I. At some point, Mary goes back to the cemetery, back to the graveside, but Mary in contrast to John, who gets it and now believes, verse 11, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have 
laid him. Two angels sitting in the tomb now. The angels were a proclamation to Mary and a proclamation to us as readers that what we have is not an invasion of robbers. What we have is an invasion of God. God is up to something. The angels contribute to the sacredness of the sight in their glowing white garments. They do not embrace Mary's grief. They say, why? Why are you weeping? You ask maybe the question, why does Mary even go back to the tomb? Oh, that's what we do today, isn't it? You have the service here in the sanctuary. We go to the cemetery, and then you go back about three hours after the graveside's over, maybe four or five. Family almost always goes back. If it's not that day, it'll be the next day. There's something that draws us there. We have to process. Is it real? Someone we love that much is gone? And how now do I do life that he's not here or she's not here? My wife, my husband, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my child, my grandchild, my grandparent, my friend. We all go back to the graveside. Can you imagine going back? And the grave dug up, and the casket missing, the body gone. How unsettling that was to Mary. She gone to grieve, to cry again, to be comforted, and she gets there, and it's the worst of all worlds. Not only can she not properly, all she wanted to do was do it like it should be done to anoint his body properly. She'd bought the spices and the ointments, and she gets there, and she can't do it. And worse, some robber has stolen his body. The angels questioned the grief. Mary, why are you weeping? The gardener, verse 14 and 15, when she had said this, she turned around and she beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Why didn't she know it was Jesus? She wasn't looking for a living Lord, she was looking for a corpse. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? The character most likely to be there early in the morning at the tomb was the gardener. And so maybe somebody told him to move the body and so she says, sir, if you have any idea where his body is, I'll go get it. 
No questions asked. I'm not worried about who did it or why they did it. If you'll just tell me, I'll get it back in the tomb. She was a lady of means. I'll anoint it. She supposes he's the gardener. You know, she's not really all wrong about that, is she? Hadn't Pilate already declared, behold the man, meaning behold the new Adam, the new gardener? And after our sin, the garden was full of thorn and thistles, but this second Adam, this new gardener was to bring flower and fruitfulness and restore the beauty of all creation. Yes, he is the gardener in some ways. Mary's moment, verse 16 and 17. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to the brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he has said these things to me. Imagine yourself at the graveside of someone you love, someone you hold dear. The body has been desecrated by the unexplained disappearance. All she wanted was one more opportunity to embrace her Lord and anoint his body. In this moment of greatest distress, Mary, he called her name. No one, no one said her name exactly like her Lord. At that instant of a moment, Mary knew he was alive. It was at I call it Mary's moment. It's that, it's that moment when you think that darkness is won, and now you see that it is light. When you think death has won the day, and now you see it's life that has won the day. It's the moment when you think after a funeral, there's nothing but despair, and now you realize there's glory and there's victory. Mary, listen carefully. I think the resurrected Lord's calling your name too. For he wants you to know he's alive as well. Mary does exactly what I would have done. She turns and she snatches him. She's not gonna, not gonna let him out of her sight again. She holds on. Mary, 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 it's all different now. Stop clinging to me. I've got to send my father and your father and my God and your God. But you go and tell the apostles, tell them these things. Mary's the first preacher of the gospel. 
Look at verse 18. Mary came announcing to the disciples. You know, there's a verb, isn't it? Mary has an announcement to make. I have seen the Lord. And this is what he told me. When Mary announces as the first preacher of the empty tomb, what she is saying is this. He is alive. Forget everything I told you about the grave robbers. I was wrong. He is alive. Listen to me, apostles. Death has been defeated. The tomb is empty. Rejoice. The Christ of the cosmos is resurrected, and he invites us into his eternal life. I have seen the Lord. Would you join John this morning by seeing the empty tomb and believing? Would you join Mary this morning and have your own aha moment because he's calling your name too? So many of you I've been by the graveside recently. I did three funerals this week. I've got some good news for you. Easter is not about the empty tomb of a solitary rabbi 2,000 years ago. Easter is about the beginning of the age of the resurrection. The Jews had foretold it. Why, he's just the first apple off the tree, Paul says, and all the apples will surely follow. It's not about one guy's grave being empty. It's about the power of God over death. It's the age of the resurrection. If we were to ask the Apostle Paul, how certain is the empty tomb of those that I buried even this week, he would say, it's already empty. It started 2,000 years ago. I started the age of the resurrection and will come to full fruition as all who have said Jesus is Lord will likewise share in his empty Well, we saw it in baptism, didn't we? If we die with him, likewise we rise with him. Good news. Mary gives us the best news. I have seen the Lord. And this is what he said. Let us pray. Oh God, our hearts are strangely warmed by a text of an empty tomb. For we know indeed that even as Christ is the first 
amongst the brethren to have an empty tomb that he is in no way the last. That in his death we die to our sin and in his resurrection we are made to eternal life. As Paul would write, if we die with him, we rise with him. Oh God, perhaps there's someone here this morning who even in recent days has been around the graveside. Maybe some this year and maybe some it's a decade ago, but it's as fresh as if it were yesterday. Today, we gather and we declare. He is not here. He is alive.